Good morning, Crosspoint. How are you? We've had a great morning here already. Welcome. Can we pray together? We get to do this. Jesus told us to do this, so we have to. But more than that, the even better attitude, which is also just as true, is we, we get to do this. You just saw two young Christians baptized. That's a special day. Uh, I heard just, just absolutely wonderful things happening from this church family all week, not because I did anything, but because you, the body of Christ, were acting like Jesus in the world, serving him, sharing the gospel with other people. Just absolutely amazing. Let's pray and thank him and we'll look into his word. Lord, I'm so, just so amazingly, profoundly, eternally grateful to be able to do this with my family here on earth, Lord, which someday we'll enjoy each other and enjoy you most of all in heaven. Help us to listen attentively. Help us to listen humbly to what you would say. May we all make the changes that you would require. Comfort us, encourage us, direct us, change us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Crosspoint said, amen. Amen. We have reached the final chair at God's family table. That is the chair of the... I didn't give you a chance. You weren't settled. You weren't ready for that. Let me tell you, while you get ready and find your Bible, Sandra Hills has asked for 200,000 pieces of candy. That's the population of Huntington Beach, ladies and gentlemen. It's a big, big request, and nobody is happier than the city's dentist, that a church is is trying to give out 200,000 pieces of candy. Listen, we are are a little behind this year in signups. We're only about a third of the way we need uh, to go in terms of having cars on campus to provide that trunk or treat experience. It's a whole lot more fun if you can work your way through the whole parking lot rather than just the front half of it. So if you wouldn't mind, that would be actually a great service, as Jim was explaining, to our community. Now, for the last several weeks, if you're here for the first time, first time in a long time, haven't been paying, paying a lot of attention, we've been walking around God's family table. We discovered seven years ago through the help of another pastor who taught me this concept. He just helped me see something that I should have seen in the Bible a long, long time earlier. That the spiritual life, what Jesus calls the new birth, actually having new life in Jesus, is very much like physical life. There are seasons in it. There are people who are loved by God and known by God, but they don't know God in return. They act as if God doesn't exist. They ignore his claims on their lives. They may even deny that he exists. They may use the reason God gave them to deny his own existence. The Bible calls such people unbelievers. They don't believe in God. They don't believe God himself. They don't trust him. Jesus said that such people need to put their trust in Jesus, God's Son. And when they are, according to Jesus himself, this has become a joke in our culture, this phrase, but it's the words of Jesus himself, people who trust God to forgive their sins, give them his life, they are born again. That's how Jesus explained it. It's Jesus himself who paints this picture of someone being born into the family of God. Once in darkness, Paul explains, now in the kingdom of God's light. 
Once alienated, separate from God, strangers to him, now his own beloved sons and daughters. And when people are newborn, they're infants. And infants are just as alive and just as cherished. In fact, they may bring more joy than anyone else in the family, but they're uninformed. They're alive, but they don't really understand all that that means. A a six-month-old knows of its own existence, but is primarily reacting to things. Other people have to care for them and nourish them. And if those infants are in the physical and the spiritual world, if those infants are well cared for, infants turn into the least cooperative service I've preached in a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) your college professor was right. Communication really is a two-way street. Even if only one guy's doing all the talking, I'm going to need you to tune in just a little bit more. A little bit, just a little bit. They become children. And being a child is an amazing time in life. And people who talk about childhood as bliss mainly don't remember probably what it's actually like to be a child. Actual childhood is mountaintops of joy and this is amazing and I love you daddy and then the slightest thing goes wrong and the entire world collapses and this is awful, I hate it here, I hate all of you. That's what a child is like. A child, unlike an infant, is actually able for the first time in life to be interdependent. A child can actually contribute. Mother may say to the child, will you please set the table? I'm almost done cooking dinner. The child can't cook dinner, but the child can set the table. But usually when those instructions are given in a lot of homes, there's some argument about who's going to set the table. And I said it last time. And who's going to get the blue plate? Because I had it last time, and it's not fair that she gets it every time. And mom has to take time away from cooking dinner to settle fights and engage in diplomatic relationships with all of her children so that we can sit down and please, can we have 10 nice minutes together as a family? (laughs) And sometimes parents begin acting like children as they try to raise their children. But if children are continue to grow. And spiritually speaking, unfortunately, many, many people get stuck in the child chair. They never move on. They normalize their immaturity. The first time I preach this series, it's new sermons every time, but I've actually shared this concept with our church three times because we find it so foundational. What we want basically is for you to find your chair at the table and keep growing up and move all the way around until you're a parent. In 2014, the first time I shared this series, I'll never forget it. I was just outside that door when I received a text message after church, and a man said, I can't believe it. I've been in church 40 years, and I just realized I'm a child. He's with the Lord now, so he's full grown now. But I, when I received that text message, I smiled a little bit because he had just discovered that he was a spiritual child. I'd known it for about a year. Because we'd been friends for about a year, and like all children, the main thing he talked about was himself, and what he wanted, and what pleased and displeased him, and why things couldn't be different to better serve his needs. That's the role of a child. After that comes a very exciting chair, which we looked at last Sunday. That is the chair of the young adult. The young adult is the season in which both of my sons find themselves. 
For the first time in their lives, for a few years now, they have, along with considering themselves, they've started thinking much more about others. A child just wants to enjoy life. A young adult starts asking important questions that will change his life and actually change eternity if he gets the right answers. He starts asking why he's here. What difference she can make. What her gifts, her health, her family, her education, what difference she can make in the world that a young adult now realizes won't last forever with a life that she has been given, which she won't have for the next 150 years. She only has a few decades in which to make her mark, serve her Lord, help serve other people, change other people's lives. The young adult for the first time is someone who is centered on others. They hunger to be in right relationship with God. They learn, they yearn to grow with God, and they learn and yearn to make a difference in the lives of other people. And then, though this is the destiny, this is the calling of every Christian, a sadly small percentage of people actually keep growing and become parents. Not everybody in this life, in this physical life, can or wants to be parents. Spiritually speaking, everyone who is born into the family of God, given enough time by God, should become parents. What's the difference? Parents are those who embrace the hard but joyful task of helping other people grow up to maturity in Christ. Parenting's a really interesting season in life if you've ever done it physically, as I'm still doing it with young adults. Parenting is the kind of thing that people sometimes who don't have kids think they know a great deal about. Have you discovered this? Those of you who, have, who are parents, have you ever been given advice by someone who doesn't have children? Isn't that a wonderful experience? Hopefully you were nice and you said, I'll take that under advisement, thank you, and then you went home and quietly prayed that God would give them many, many children. Six or seven of them absolutely awful so that they could practice all of their perfect parenting philosophy on. See, someone who has the audacity to give authoritative parenting advice that's not yet on the joyous road of parenting himself, that's childlike behavior. Children are characterized by boundless confidence that has no basis in reality. Parents know how hard it is. Parents know that the journey is not easy. Parents know that the road is marked not only with success, but also with tears. But they are committed to that hard but joyous task of helping other people in Christ grow up to be just like him. Here's how the Apostle John described such people. We're back in 1 John, where last week I read you John's categories of spiritual life. He referred to some Christians as little children, to others as young men. And in 1 John 2, he talks about fathers. And he's referring to parents. It's a spiritual picture, same as I'm painting here, of those who are both fathers and mothers, spiritually grown-up people in the community of Christians that John is addressing. John said, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. The very next verse, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's not a misprint. In two verses, John addressed spiritual parents and said identically the same thing to them consecutively. I am writing to you 
And I write to you for one fact, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I have a Bible reading question for you. Do you think God is a bad author? You ever read a book that's too repetitive? I've preached sermons like that, where I've had people who love me well enough to tell me, really, you spent about eight minutes too long on that one point. We got it about two minutes in. You really could have saved us all a lot of time by moving on. Fair enough. Do you think God, in writing his word, ever makes those kinds of mistakes? He doesn't. So this repetitiveness, the same sentence, you know him who is from the beginning, it's the only thing that is said to spiritual parents. The little children and the young men, they know God as well. Why does it just say this, and especially why does it say it twice? That's an invitation to the reader. My number one Bible reading tip to you all these years, when you're reading the Bible, slow down. Ask questions like these. Why did John, the most beloved of Jesus' disciples, the one who Jesus perhaps trusted more on earth in talking to people who were beginning to suffer and be persecuted and watch people leave the faith, why did all he have to say to the most grown up in the congregation, I'm writing to you because you know the God who is from the beginning. Why did he just say that? It's an invitation to the reader to sit with John for a moment and ponder that question. Here's the answer I have after study. The characteristic of spiritual parents is that in all seasons, they know and remember who God is. They no longer see life as children and even young adults do through the lens of things that are merely temporary. Those who have progressed to full spiritual maturity, like the young men, the young adults before them, have the word of God living in them, have overcome the evil one, but they have moved further in their knowledge of God so that whatever happens, they themselves are at rest. Their faith isn't circumstantial. It's not occasional. When suffering slams into their lives, they remember and they rest in the fact that they know the God who is there from the very beginning. They know the God who is the beginning of all other things. That's a very rare and special spiritual attainment. Maybe you've seen it. I've seen it countless times. I won't mention her name out of a fear of embarrassing her, but there is a very elderly woman in this congregation who can no longer come here physically. Her lysite is nearly completely gone, but she tells me that with the help of the people who care for her, she never misses the 9 a.m. Sunday morning online. Her world has collapsed down to a small dark circle inside her home. And in the regular visits I make to her, she never fails before I leave to take one of my hands and both of hers and cry and tell me how grateful she is to God for how good he has been to her her whole life. And she's told me her life. And I know that though it has been blessed, it hasn't all been good. I know these last four years have been exceedingly heartbreakingly difficult. What kind of attitude flows out of a broken life if that life is mature? It rests in the fact that she knows the one who is from the very beginning. This is what spiritual parents are. What are they like? 
We're going to read 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read you some longer sections in 1 Thessalonians to help you hear in the voice of Paul what it sounds like for you to be a spiritual parent. I'm going to identify for you some commitments that spiritual parents make primarily by reading 1 Thessalonians. Here's the setting. Paul has gone along with others to preach the gospel in a proud capital city in a Roman province called Thessalonica. He has been received there for three weekends in the synagogue. As Paul always does, he's opened up the Hebrew Scriptures. He has shown beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus is the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's read from scriptures written 700 and even a thousand years earlier. He's moved through all the scripture that God had given at that time and shown Jews and Gentiles that Jesus is the one who God promised. He is the one who saved Paul and drew him out of his ultra-Orthodox Judaism. And Paul has now changed his entire life and suffered greatly for it so that everyone, his countrymen, the Jews and Gentiles who he previously despised, will know what God has done in giving his own son, Jesus Christ. For his trouble, Paul was run out of town. Other people from his countrymen who hated him and hated his message actually created a riot. Paul's host, a man named Jason, had to answer before the legal authorities and Paul had no choice but to leave under the company with the company of other disciples and essentially run for his life before it got more violent and they killed him. From his sudden exit, Paul wrote them this letter that we're reading. The whole letter, it's one of my favorites in the New Testament. It may be, according to some scholars, the first letter that Paul ever wrote. And it beats with the strong heart of a spiritual dad. As I read it to you, if you read it slowly and carefully, if you take to heart the kinds of things that he's saying, you'll understand how concerned he was. And the first thing Paul says is that a spiritual parent gives the gospel to other people. The primary difference, the first difference between a young adult and a spiritual parent is that a spiritual parent is continually reminding other people of the good news. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. For we know, brothers, love by God that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That's the proof of good parenting. If the parents have done a good job and the child has received the lessons, mom and dad don't have to talk much. The life of their child can be examined and can, they can see the quality of what that kid has been taught. Paul says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how, will you read with me what I've put in bold? 
Just so you know, the Bible does not have italics and bold letters. I did that for emphasis. Okay? Would you read it with me where it says, you turned? The Bible says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Study the Bible with me. What did the Thessalonians do when they heard the good news about Jesus according to what we just read? They turned. What did they turn from? Idols. They turned to what? They turned to God, to the living and true God. They accepted the message of his son, Jesus, from heaven, who raised, who God raised from the dead, and Jesus is going to be the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. You say, Pastor, I heard a lot of old words in there. I don't know where Macedonia and Achaia are. I'm not sure what a Thessalonian is. Sounds like an exotic car park. Let me remind you, these are just ordinary people. Many of them are actually illiterate. Like you, they've been raised in a world of idolatry. In the ancient world, the idols may have been stone and wood. and the wealthier homes, they may have had jewels encrusted through careful craftsmanship. But in some of these homes, someone is going to a temple, bowing down somewhere at home at a shrine they had built. There were idols in the first century that replaced the knowledge and the love of the one true God who's there from the beginning. My question for you, do we still have idols in 21st century Orange County? Do we have things that replace the affection and the claims of God in our own hearts? Yes. Talk to me about the Orange County idols. What are they? Money. Money, possessions, success. Image and entertainment. The ability that wealth and success give you to make your own schedule and do what you want. Ideally, you put it all on Instagram and you present a very carefully curated image to the world so that others will see how well you are doing and wish they could be like you. Let me tell you, if you've been tortured by Instagram, let me tell you from a pastor's perspective, someone who people sometimes confide in, that's just the highlight reel. Everybody's being very selective in what they present to the world. I've been shocked sometimes in counseling at how broken a life is that I myself thought was all in order because all I saw was social media. Our idols are different, but no less deadly. In the case of the Thessalonians, they were the harsh, pagan, false gods of the ancient world. Orange County offers its own idols. It tells people to ignore death. It it tells people through all manner of interventions to delay or at least delay the appearance of aging. It tells them that what matters most is making it in this world. And it's all a lie because there is a God in heaven who knows what is right, who is righteousness himself, who will someday act in the world to correct all the evil that stains our TV screens and breaks our hearts every day. You may have noticed at the end, it says Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And somebody will say, here goes a Baptist pastor again talking about wrath. I talk about wrath because the Bible talks about wrath. Our culture is angry. We've done very, something very strange in our own idolatry. God is the only one who doesn't have a right to be mad. 
Everybody has a cause, everybody has a hashtag, everybody is angry about something and demanding that things be made right, but God himself, who is righteousness, he will, my old professor was right, it will all come out in the wash. Every secret will be exposed, every evil deed will be exposed and judged, and it is only the Son of God who was raised from the dead to give people eternal life. He's the only one who can deliver us from the wrath of God which is to come. To put it to you very simply, every person in this room, every person on this earth will someday meet God for himself. And you will either discover that God is your righteous judge or God is your loving heavenly father. Spiritual parents never tire of telling people the good news of what God has done in history to send his son to live righteously to die unjustly, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And he did all that to give us eternal life and spare us from the wrath to come. The second thing that parents do is they make sacrifices to help other people grow up. That is the nature of parenthood. I've got two sons now, nearly grown up. I have a 24-year-old son who's now a leader in his own right in a high-stakes environment. And a 21-year-old who, if his life and career continue to progress, might be very, very helpful to the rest of us in a few years. He's a biomedical engineering student. I've told him to turn me into a robot in the years to come (laughs) so that I can keep getting up here. Raising my own children, having a 24- and a 21-year-old at home, the one, one of far from home at work. Only now am I beginning to realize all that my parents did for me. I thought I had fully appreciated their parenting, but I hadn't. Every new season as I go with my kids into their next season in life, it puts fresh challenges on me as a parent and it makes me appreciate afresh What a spectacular job my parents did parenting me. What a wonderful job my in-laws did with my wife, Sharice. The passages that I'm going to read to you now burst with parental language. In fact, the first image may surprise you. Listen. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I've gone to a lot of pastor's conferences. I have yet to attend one that presents this image of ministry to the pastors who go to the conference. It's shocking. Paul says, when we were with you, the brief time we had with you, we were gentle with you. We weren't harsh. We weren't demanding. We were so gentle, so nourishing, that we were actually like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. This is one of my favorite phrases in the entire New Testament. I'm the only one who could possibly remember, but this was the verse I preached to you 16 years ago when you, thank you, welcome me as your new senior pastor. It's really surprising that Paul says we were willing to share with you not only the gospel. The words not only are a very strange pair of words to put in front of the words the gospel. As if the gospel were secondary. As if there were something better. Why does he do that? 
Why does Paul say we were willing to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves? Because the good news is a message. The good news is the presentation of a person. And there are many people, including Christians, that are willing to give somebody else a presentation about Jesus. There are many Christians who are willing to tell other people the saving news about Jesus, but giving yourself to give your own life, that's a much harder request. And the difference between a young adult and a parent, a young adult will give the gospel. A parent will do more than that. They will love the people they're bringing the gospel to. They will love the teenagers they're trying to bring along in youth ministry. They will love their young, recently converted friends in the church so much that they won't just keep sharing the message with them no matter how true and vital it is. They will also, along with the message, give themselves... That's made all the difference. All my life I've been taught and corrected and mentored and discipled by a lot of wonderful people, primarily pastors and seminary professors. The ones who made the biggest difference were not the men who put their hand on my shoulder and invested in me. They were the ones who also let their elbow relax and brought me close so I could feel their heartbeat so that we could stand shoulder to shoulder together so that I would be more than a student to them so that I could become a close friend. Hear their burdens, feel their tears, know what they were afraid of. That taught me so much because they gave me not only the gospel, they gave me themselves, Paul says, for you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we not, might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, read the rest of this with me. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. Did you notice the word picture changed? Paul says, we were with you like a nursing mother but we were also with you like a what? A father. And the father's role in Paul's imagery is a little bit different. He exhorts, he encourages, and he, unusual word, he charges. In other words, he said it wasn't all tender nourishment. It wasn't all holding you close. There were also times where we were very firm and very direct and very clear with you. We exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God because it is God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Good spiritual parenting will be as tender and as a nursing mother and can be as firm and demanding also when needed if that's what the child needs as a father who says enough's enough. And listen to me, and I'm not going to say this another time. I had such an experience when I was 18 years old. I think most healthy young men go through this. There's a time when you test yourself with your father. Anybody else do this, or am I just that dumb? It's a dumb choice in my part, because my dad, he's been worn down by injury and age, like everybody eventually is. My dad was a beast when he was a kid. I'm 
I've never been strong. Both of my sons are, and they get it from not their dad, but their grandpa on both sides. My father was a physical specimen when I was young, but I forgot. Do you ever forget? And when I was 18, I was kind of feeling it. I'd looked at myself, and I thought I looked pretty good, and I thought I looked pretty grown, and I started going out with my friends and my parents because they were good parents, and we lived in a pretty wicked and pretty dangerous city in northern Mexico. They had a strict curfew because they knew the kinds of things that happened if I was allowed to stay out longer than they knew was wise. But I decided to test the curfew in a very mild way. I went home, but I didn't go in the house. I stayed outside in my friend's car till about one in the morning, well past my curfew. And I'm just, he's fine. He knows I'm here. I can see lights on. I see a face in the window looking out. I'm fine. My father taught me a lot that night. He got dressed and he came to the car. And I'll never forget because this showed me a lot about what real, genuine strength and gentlemanliness actually was. He very politely asked my friend, my dumb friend, because young men, let me just give you my experience. When young men of a certain age are together, what happens when we're in groups is you take the IQ that is lowest among all of those individuals, and then you divide it by the number of men present, and that's the operating system for the whole group, okay? So we were operating at a pretty, pretty low level, he and I. And my dad, after the window was rolled down, he said, son, it's, it's really late, and you can tell your mother and I are up. Would, would you mind just coming in the house just a minute? Very gentle offer. He didn't embarrass me. He was trying so hard to be a good man. My response, I'll come in when I feel like it. I know, that's what he said. <laughs> just like that. He had the good, godly character to turn around and walk in the house. And I just sat there like an idiot. And my friend, who apparently his IQ was bumped up by this experience, said, hey, dude, that was not, this is all in Spanish, I'm translating into English. But what he said in Spanish was, that was not cool. You better go in. I thought, okay, I'll go in. I had forgotten that it wasn't over. Just inside the door, I felt my father's strong hand grip me by the shoulder, very gently put me on the wall. And he said something like, the way you just talked to me, it feels like maybe you think you're, you're a man now. Are you? Are you ready to act like a man in this house? And I said, first wise thing I said all night, sir, I'd love to go to bed. And he said, that's a very good idea. Sleep fast, we'll be up at six. And that's what we did. Our house was basically on the city loop. My friends drove around it all day long looking for girls. And that's how they were treated to a spectacle. About 12 hours from 6 to 6 that day as I washed and waxed not only all of our family's cars, but every vehicle the church owned at that time. All day long with no more threatening, no more anger, my dad just reminded me through hard labor through a strong hand on the shoulder and through a very stern invitation, he charged me to start acting more like the young man he was trying to raise me to be. This is what spiritual parents do. 
whether it's nourishing or having the courage to correct them with self-control but firmness, spiritual parents are always working and making sacrifices for the good of the people they're helping to grow up. Look what it says next. 1 Thessalonians 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. You yourselves know that we are destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Listen to the heart here. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you hear how much he cares? He's far from them, but his heart is broken. He's afraid that his quick exit would mean that their faith would be shaken. See, Paul was followed by false teachers everywhere he went. And their main message was, the reason Paul's always getting the tar kicked out of him and thrown into prison is he's a false teacher. God doesn't approve of him. He doesn't know Jesus. He's not telling you the truth about Jesus. You need to remain in the Mosaic law. You need to remain in the synagogue. Everywhere Paul went, he was followed by that crowd. And what Paul's doing here is, listen, we know that you heard that we suffered. It's okay. We told you all along. That's the way this life is. Our concern was not for our suffering. Our concern was the effect it was having on you, that you would be shaken, that the devil would tempt you, and that the work we did among you as your parents would be wasted. This is Paul's whole life. In Acts chapter 14, speaking of another experience, I want you to hear what the apostles were like. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Those are ancient cities in Paul's world. Here's what they were doing. Read the rest of it with me, beginning with the word strengthening. Here's what spiritual parents do. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Are you seeing this? One of the main things parents do for their children is they prepare them to suffer. One of the great curses of modern parenting is that we have tried at every level in our society to make sure that children face no adversity at all. To act like lawnmowers and just mow everything down in front of them so that they are never tested, they are never disappointed, they never shed a tear. God himself knows, and that's why there's so much of this imagery in the New Testament, that that is not a realistic path in life itself, and it's certainly not a realistic path in the lives of the disciples. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. These young believers that were just baptized, what a joyous, amazing occasion for the Martin family. This is a day of rejoicing and celebrating. There will be harder days ahead, and that'll be normal. 
and the God who is there from the beginning, the God that made all things, His love, His purpose, His plan is not changed in the slightest. Notice also that the apostles worked hard to leave all of these Christians not rooted in their individual faith. They worked to leave them in church when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. The greatest thing, the, one of the happiest things for me in this pandemic is how quickly we rallied as a church body when we came back together. I hear all the time, all across the country, by pastors and scholars who are studying this issue that 30% of American Christians have left the church apparently never to return. That's not biblical Christianity. The apostles were working to establish every individual believer, but not to leave them alone, to leave them under the care of appropriate, qualified, godly leadership in the local church. And having done that, needing to move on, often because they were being persecuted and pursued, they turned them over to the Lord who saved them all. This is what spiritual parents do. Third trait for parents. They consider other people the greatest treasure they can present to Jesus. 1 Thessalonians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. One of the themes that runs right through it is the second coming of Jesus. In fact, there's a reference to the second coming of Jesus at the end of every chapter. Five chapters. Every chapter concludes with Paul remembering, looking ahead to the return of the Lord. I want you to see what is pulling him forward. Because if Paul were here preaching in my place, and you would be much happier if he were, believe me, you would probably see a man who couldn't see you. You would see a man covered with scars and defensive wounds on his hands, his forearms, his entire body. You would probably see a man whose back was bowed and bent by the beatings he repeatedly took as he continually presented Jesus. What kept him going was a continual look ahead to the return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Amen. Really interesting thing about parents is we embarrass our kids by showing other people pictures of our kids. This week, one of our own, Pastor Jim's son, Luke Gain, was given a great honor by the Anaheim Ducks. Luke was named the 21st Duck. Luke, because of his own struggles and trials, with a very, very serious childhood illness that could have very easily taken his life, has quietly been serving other kids at Chalk Hospital to encourage them. The Ducks noticed, and they made Luke the 21st Duck. He'll serve in that honorary role for the rest of the season. He got to skate out with the team. And he kind of looked the part, if you know who Luke Gain is. He looked like he belonged on the hockey team. He does play hockey, not at their level, but he looked just like one of them. Everybody who cares about Luke 
sent pictures, sent videos around, and we all remembered fondly the junior in high school who was sick nearly unto death, who's now serving other kids and being honored on one of the biggest sporting stages in our country. And all those pictures and videos lit up our phones for about two days. Why? Because we're so proud of him. Because we're so grateful for the story. That's the sort of joy, but on a much bigger and much more eternal scale that Paul is mentioning here. Paul is saying from his scarred, blinded body, we know that someday soon we'll be before the Lord and our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus, our glory and our joy is you. Please, spiritual parents, whether you're raising your own kids spiritually or you're helping through children, through youth ministry, through discipleship, through counseling, through grief share, through divorce care, through small groups, through the many things that this church does to help people grow up in Christ, please keep in view that someday you're going to stand before Jesus and the greatest thing you can bring with him is other people. And to say, look, Lord, I know you already know this, but look, the kids made it. They're all here. They're all accounted for. That's our glory. That's our joy. So how do we help other Christians grow into this stage? How do we help them make the move from young adults to parents? We do this. We help them become disciples who make disciples beginning with their own children. That's what it takes. Our church, beginning with the guy who's talking to you right now, our church is committed right down to the cellular level to help every one of you that's a Christian become a parent for other Christians. Help other people, beginning with your own children, small or grown, become fully mature disciples of Jesus that look, act, think, choose, love, serve, give, live, and die if necessary in the same way that Jesus did. That's our first mandate. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When my dad confronted my foolish 18-year-old self, he did a great bit of parenting that night. It was extraordinary. Every time I've lost it in raising my own kids, I've done it in spite of the good example my father set for me. He taught me what it was like to be offended and disrespected by a punk kid and bear it well. Bear it like a man. Bear it with nobility and courage and forgiveness and grace rather than do the stereotypically dumb man thing and lose it. Parents, we want to be your partners in helping your children grow up as my father helped me in the discipline and instruction of Jesus. Here's the three commitments that a spiritual parent needs to make. Number one, a spiritual parent says, first of all, I will make sacrifices for the joy of seeing other people grow up. That's your first step. You have to be willing to sacrifice for the joy, for the growth, for the sake of others. If you are not willing to make that step, you'll never grow past spiritual childlikeness. Number two, a spiritual parent says, I will never give up. As long as I have breath, as long as I have influence, as long as you'll listen to me, as long as I can pray for you, I'm never giving up in helping you develop into the man, into the woman that I know Jesus wants you to be. Listen to Paul in his last letter. 
He said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Read the rest of it with me. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. You're in that verse. You can finish your own race. You can fight your own fight. You can rejoice before the Lord if you don't give up. The name of George Mueller is familiar to many Christians because in the last 200 or so years, there might not have been a better saint. Mueller decided through the power of prayer alone without ever making a public appeal for money to welcome children from across England to feed them, to care for them, to educate them. He spent a fortune on all of that and other ministries never asking anyone for money because he had a personal conviction from the Lord that he would pray it in and that's how people would know that there was still a God in heaven who answered prayer. Mueller, I've read, prayed for two friends of his, two unbelieving friends. Mueller, who could feed a multitude of orphans through the power of prayer, prayed for two unbelieving friends for 30 years. One reportedly was saved at Mueller's funeral. The other didn't trust Christ until a year after Mueller's death. But he never gave up. He died without seeing that his prayers had done any good to bring two men he loved to Christ. But eventually, someday, when they walked into glory and they saw Mueller themselves, he knew that his prayers of three decades had been answered. That's spiritual parenting. You never ever give up and finally a spiritual parent says I'm going to stay strong so that I can keep serving others for the eternal glory of God I will prioritize my health my strength my capacity not for my sake but for the sake of others listen to Paul a final time at my first offense no one came to stand by me this is his last chapter he's about to be killed by the Roman government Listen to the strength. Listen to the tenacity. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. And with Paul we say, amen. You want to be a spiritual parent? Start raising up others. That's what makes the difference. Children and self-interested young adults are only interested in raising themselves up, in creating their platform, in making themselves known. Parents surrender to a greater goal to lower themselves so that Jesus can be seen and loved from the highest platform we could possibly give him. Parents are determined and delighted when their, parent, when their children surpass them and grow into bigger and better servants of, parent, of Christ than the parents ever dared to be. So listen, if you're in this room and you've heard this message, you have an opportunity and candidly an accountability to grow into your maturity in Christ. If you're not a believer yet, Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave to rescue you from the idols you've been trusting. 
Jesus knows what those idols will cost you. He knows how false they are. My invitation to you is to give up on those idols, including giving up on yourself, and turn yourself over to Jesus. And if you already know him, dear parent, dear spiritual parent, don't give up. Keep walking. And for the love of Jesus and the sake of others, let's raise some other people up. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you take this next minute and help Christians take a step with you, I pray? I've been talking about not giving up. Have you given up? Are you so discouraged in ministry, especially among your own family, that you begin wondering what the point is? Can I invite you back into the spirit and the attitude of Paul that refuses to give up? that lives and loves literally to the last breath. Hundreds of people are pouring themselves into the lives of others through children's ministry, through youth ministry, through simple, fun things like this trunk or treat event that we do. It's all going to be worth it. That's going to help us show up to meet Jesus ourselves with the crowd behind us. Maybe in some cases, just one or two people. That'll be your glory. That'll be your treasure. That'll be your crown. That's what you're going to present to Jesus. You're going to show up yourself and you're going to bring others with you. They'll arrive 10, 20, 30 years later, maybe into heaven, but it'll be because of your influence. Thank you. God bless you. Don't give up. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, listen, I've done what I can. I'm just a messenger. I'm just the man telling you about the Son of God who can save you. If you haven't, could I invite you right now to turn away from those idols that are killing you, whether you know it or not, they're killing you, and tell Jesus, I'm sorry, I believe you, I'm sorry for my sin, please forgive me, give me your righteousness. Jesus, give me your life, spare me the wrath that is coming, and save me. And he will. And if you do that this morning, please let us know. There's a card in your bulletin for you to let us know. Just leave that with an usher or leave it in a box at the exit. Jesus, please help us all move around the table. We want, Lord, in the coming months to see everybody take their next step, grow into more Christ-like, grown-up maturity so that Jesus will be pleased and others will be served. We pray this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint says, amen. A final piece of good news. The Goodman family is a family we've come to love in this church, and I'm very happy to tell you that Adam and Jessica Goodman desire formally to be members of this church. Would you help me make them feel welcome? Just outside these walls is a world filled with idolatry. People will cherish their idols and die for it. You know the living and true God. You know the one who sent his son to give you life and spare you from wrath. For his sake and for their sake, go live among them. Go tell them about him. And I'll see you next week. Please do not forget, we have a chance to serve through the trunk or treat. Please let us know if you can help. God bless you. Love you.